invite you then to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be looking today at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The third letter was written to the churches of Asia as the Lord came to John on the Isle of Patmos and dictated them for him to pen down and to send to these seven churches. We've read how the church at Ephesus had lost its first love. We saw the, the encouragement in the midst of persecution and poverty in Smyrna. Now we turn our attention to the church that was in Pergamos. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, or excuse me, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I am struck in the beginning here today by verse 17 when we are told that he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Each of these letters written to an individual church in an individual circumstance, situation, challenge and struggle and responses to those, but I believe that all of these letters were to be read in some sense or were read by all of the churches and certainly today we can read the letters that were written to all of these churches and today we we see this letter written to the church in Pergamum. The title for the thought today would be Faithful. Faithful and yet at risk. Faithful and yet at risk of the things that can happen uh, even to those who exercise that faithfulness. Begins and he says to the The one who is writing is the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Like a physical sword, the Lord's word separates. Another place in Scripture talks about the word of God being able to pierce even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And the, the word of the one who is sending this letter, those words are are like a sword that separates. Like a sword separates flesh and bone, the word of Christ separates believer from unbeliever. 
when the Lord speaks, he both defines right and wrong at the same time. He gathers some and rejects others by his word. His word is the divider and always has been. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, he told us this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, the Lord says, but a sword. And we know that is the sword of his words. I have not come to bring peace, he said, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because these are the words of the Son of God, they are, we know, true words. And by speaking the truth, in the very same moment he speaks truth, he identifies false. With one side of the sword, Christ saves. With one side of that word of truth, he saves those who come to him. And with that same word on the other side of the sword, he destroys. He casts out. By, by claiming the requirements of salvation to be repentance and faith and a new birth, he, the Lord, does completely abolishes any other way of salvation other than the one he has prescribed. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And that sword again is his word, which is the word of truth. Truth is its own weapon. Truth is a powerful weapon, even when wielded by those in the world who might not have very much in the way of earthly power. When they have truth, when we know the truth, we have a great weapon. When we know the word of God, we have the words that both divide the soul and the spirit, that divide right from wrong, that define salvation and condemnation. This is the one who is writing to this church, reminding them of that truth. Man doesn't have this kind of sword. Men don't have this kind of ability. And he wrote to them, telling them again, this nature of his alone. He told them that he knows where they dwell and the closeness of Satan to them. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was not afflicted like many of the other churches with a, a strong, overbearing, pharisaical legalism as some of the churches faced. Ephesus, perhaps, might be argued. They faced that kind of struggle, having lost their first love and yet true to the written and true to a lot of the outward service of God. Yet inwardly, they'd lost that first love. Pergamum doesn't seem to be in the same exact place but the Lord writes to them and he says, I know where you live 
And I know that where you live is a place that Satan holds counsel. His very throne seems to be in the very midst of Pergamos. An obvious influence in this city of the influence of Satan and that that he would have people to believe. The church in Pergamum again didn't face Jewish legalism like many of the other churches, but they faced open immorality and idolatry continually under the auspices of the Roman uh, uh, religious system as well as the Greek and the pagan things that came along with that and the immorality, as I said, and the idolatry that was rampant among them. And Jesus writes to them and he says, I know where you live. I know the situation you're in. Very much like he has told the previous two churches, I know. And so often the case is that we begin to think that God doesn't know our condition, our condition and our situation and our struggles and our challenges. And we think them unique to us. And in maybe some ways they are. As they say, new, all news is just old news to new people. But it's still new when we encounter these struggles and these trials. And sometimes we can begin to think that God doesn't know. I want you to read the seven letters that he wrote to his churches in Asia and remember that he does. He knows. He knows every situation of your life. He knows every circumstance of every city in the world and every nation in the world. I know the, I know the danger that you are living among. And he knows as well as he gives them this commendation that they were faithful, yet you hold fast to my name, he says in verse 13. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He commends their faithfulness in the face of this open persecution that had settled among their people, much like it had in Smyrna. And they were faithful. They were faithful. We are not talking here about the church in Pergamum. We are not talking about a church that did not have faith in Christ. They clearly did, and yet they are at risk. They are at risk of a very different battle that takes place in a very different realm. What could such a church struggle with if it was willing to follow even in the face of this persecution where one of their own had been struck down and killed for his faith, what could threaten such a church as this one of this kind of faith? I know of no church in our land today that has faced a similar situation. And yet many are faithful churches today. But we think of a church like this that's in Pergamos and we think they must have been strong in their faith and seemingly in a way they were. Unwilling to sacrifice and compromise to the point that they were willing to go to even their deaths. What could such a church struggle with? Well, we, we find out with the rebuke that the Lord gives to them after commending them for that faithfulness, that was commendable. He says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. And he lists them. This church that has stood the test of persecution to the point of death is faced now with some rebuke 
from the Lord for whom they have stood and with whom they desire to stand. The Lord himself tells them, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And you have, and as he says in verse 15, also some among you who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, who we have already heard God hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and yet in, in Pergamos there seems to be something of an acceptance of these teachings. There's some among them who are repeating the counsel of Balaam to Balak in the Old Testament. These people who stood such a test as they have stood and their faithfulness in that test, yet now they are at risk of losing another battle that is inward and that is every bit as real. You see, their great faith did not protect them from great weakness in other areas. Their great faith outwardly did not threaten their, or did not protect them from the risk of losing their faith inwardly. Their great faith in Pergamum did not excuse them from their responsibility to live righteously before God and before the world. And that is what seems to be at risk in Pergamum. Those who held to the teaching of Balaam and if you want to go back very quickly, that is, you remember the story of the donkey that got in front of, uh, it told Balaam and got in his way. Balak, the king of Moab, wanted Balaam to curse Israel as they were traveling through his land. And Balaam essentially tells him, I think three times, I cannot curse God's people. And so we wonder what then was the stumbling block? Well, we find out later in the Old, in the Old Testament that Balak, or Balaam had counseled Balak to send his uh, his women and send the women of Moab among the children of Israel and and intermarry and 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 intermingle to intermingle with the world and to wrap their lives up with the world and the worship of the idols of the world. You find this in the New American Commentary about this. He, this is a summary. This is a, a, a summary of what Balaam might have said to Balak. I cannot curse what God has blessed, but you have paid me handsomely, and I do know people very well. These people have been in the wilderness a long time, and you have many beautiful women in Moab. I suggest you send your women among them, and my guess is that their behavior, that by their behavior, they will bring down God's curse upon themselves. A faithful church in Pergamum, but one who is at risk of meddling with the world far too much and accepting and being in the midst of that far too much. What Satan fails at with open persecution, he often succeeds at with inward temptation and acceptance of the world. J.M. Pendleton said it this way, in the book he wrote on landmarkism, the revolution, and he's talking about the Revolutionary War in America, the revolution established the principle of religious liberty. And since then, Baptists have so risen in the scale of respectability that groups once looked upon with disdain now court alliance with them 
Pendleton said this, Beware, Baptist, beware. Whipping and fining and imprisonment are not the only methods by which you can be injured. There is the embrace of apparent love, which is the embrace of death. Error loves to ally itself to truth, and the interest of truth suffers by every such alliance. And that seems to be something of what was at risk in Pergamum, this acceptance of the world's standards rather than a holding of God's, an acceptance of immorality, an acceptance of impurity that God had called his people to. The Nicolaitans and their teaching, in essence, it was the same. And it seems to be based upon what one might uh, uh, determine or conclude based upon this reading. There seems to be something of maybe an overcorrection against the legalism of the Jews and the Pharisees into what has been called an antinomian lifestyle, which is a anything goes. The law doesn't save, and so the law is useless. By the law, no one has ever been justified, which is true. But to take that to its wrong conclusion is this. So we have no obligation to live according to the dictates of the law. It's an overcorrection. A lifestyle characterized by immorality, as we said, impurity, acceptance of a sinful way of life that of those that surrounded them as they worshipped at Satan's throne. And there seemed to be, even though there was this great faithfulness in Pergamum, even in the face of that persecution and death of the one that had lost their lives to that persecution, yet there seemed to be some very great danger of accepting the things in the world as the standard by which they should judge themselves. That which external persecution cannot overcome is often overwhelmed by internal spiritual weakness. And I think that's the challenge that the Lord was confronting the church at Pergamum with. I think this is something for us to think about, and I found it somewhat interesting, the timing, as we perhaps will set off on a study of this book by C.S. Lewis of the Screwtape Letters and the spiritual battles that we face. The church in Pergamum had withstood an open battle, it appears very very clearly, and no doubt there was a spiritual battle to it and a spiritual component to it, and they faced it, and they withstood it, and even though Antipas was taken from them and martyred, there was still more yet to be done, and Jesus says, I commend you for your faithfulness, but I've got some things that against you that I need you to confront and I need you to wrestle with and I need you to acknowledge and I need you to, to look at the, the, the big mound under the rug in the middle of the room that you're ignoring and that elephant in the middle of the room that you're ignoring. There's some things that I have against you. You are playing with the fire of the sinfulness of the world and you do that long enough, you're going to get burned. I recognize your faithfulness and I am thankful for it, but there are some things that you need to wrestle with and deal with in your lives. You have some among you that you allow to remain among you that are openly sinful and openly following the way of the world. And how can it be that one who says they are following the way of Christ live in such ways? I have something against you. I have some things to tell you. 
that which open and external persecution could not overcome in Pergamum, Satan was working inwardly to ultimately uh, throw, overthrow them in a very different way. So as we set out and look at this spiritual battle that C.S. Lewis wrote about in, in humorous ways, and there are many times as you read this book that you will smile and grin at the truth of what is being said, a book filled with humor, but one that deals with the most serious subject, the spiritual battles that we fight, that we win and that we lose. And oftentimes it's not great external outward manifestations that we see, it's inward things that then develop into outward things. And so the Lord tells them, I've got this against you. You've got some folks who are among you. And they are living lives just like the world. And so he warns them. He tells them what's wrong. Tells them what he has against them. Here is the accusation. And he warns them and he says to repent. Repent, therefore, he says in verse 16. You see, there is a possibility and an opportunity here is given to fix what is broken now and what might ultimately break the church in the future. There's an opportunity. It's not yet too late. If it were, the Lord wouldn't have said repent. The Lord doesn't give opportunities. He does not give choices for us to make that he then does not allow us to make. Repent. It's not too late. The rebuke of God might seem like a defeat, but it isn't. What the Lord has told the church in Pergamum is very serious, and it's a very serious accusation, and some might take that as having lost the battle, but that's not true. He's laid out the problem. But the opportunity, the battle is still there to be waged and to be won or to be lost. Repent. I've told you what's wrong. I've given you the warning. Now repent. The rebuke of God is not a defeat. It's a warning of a coming defeat if we do not change our ways. But on that moment and in that moment, that moment had not yet come and the Lord says, repent. And we should, we should be thankful to God every time he gives us an opportunity and we hear him say to us, repent. Because that means there's opportunity to do so. And it's not yet too late. The enemy wants you to think otherwise. But in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. In the King James, that's, that word is chastisement or weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. I want you to hear that again. The Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. When the Lord comes to you, or he, as he came to this church in Pergamum, he acknowledged their faithfulness. They had remained true to his name. They had openly and publicly said and continued to say, we follow Christ. And yet he says, but you've got people among you who are living just like the world, 
and bringing that impurity into among you. And I tell you today, you are to repent. And as he told them that, he told them that because he loved them. So when the Lord tells us to repent, we have in front of us an opportunity because the opportunity is there. It's not yet too late. You see, God does not judge where he has not first warned. God does not judge where he has not first warned. All through the Bible, this is a repeated pattern. Adam and Eve, verse 17 of chapter 2 in Genesis, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He warned them, did he not? Flip over to Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and read about the flood and Noah. He told Noah, did he not warn him? In Genesis chapter 6 verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The Hebrew writer talks about this same situation in chapter 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God, Concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Warned of things that had not yet been seen. And now you package this up and you look at what Jesus is writing to the church in Pergamum. And he says, listen, I have some things against you and I want you to repent. And then he's going to tell them what's going to come. Things not yet seen, not yet understood fully, not yet known. He says, this is coming, but I am warning you in advance. He warned Adam and Eve. He warned Noah. He warned Israel time and time and time again. Jesus said in verse 34 of Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. How many prophets have your fathers stoned, turned a deaf ear to, mocked and ridiculed, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, Habakkuk, all of these, your fathers, turned them away, and yet I warned you again and again and again. And here we are. Pergamum, the church there, is facing the same situation. I commend your faithfulness, but I have some things against you, and I'm warning you, you must repent. Repent. And it's a repent or else. There is an or else. There is another side. There is a fulfillment of a rejection of the warning. If not, he says in verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Why is this? Did you, ever, did you notice that he said he's going to come and fight against them? He didn't say, I'm going to come and fight against you. I'm going to come and fight against them. The problem was the them Pergamum had allowed to be among the church. You will find yourselves 
among those whom I, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the one whose words are sharper than a two-edged sword, you'll find yourselves among those whom I will be fighting against. And there is great danger between now and then, even as their influence continues to influence you, that perhaps you may be saved and you are mine and you will never be lost again. You are forever and eternally secure in my hands. But those around you that are influencing the rest of those around you, your friends, your family, your children, maybe they will become among those that are under the heading of them that the Lord is going to come fight against. You see, there is opportunity, or God would, the Lord wouldn't have said repent, but that opportunity is not without its limits. Adam and Eve were warned, as we said, and they did indeed die. They died instantly spiritually, and their bodies began the process of death that day. And every day, death took a little bit more hold of their physical bodies and they eventually found a grave never intended for them to be in. Warned, and yet the warning that they were given, that they ignored, the penalty was paid. The flood did come. We read that Noah was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred years, crying out to the world that God's judgment was coming. The warning came. And when the warning was ignored, the judgment followed. And that, that following of the judgment, as, as we read in this verse, if you don't, I will come soon. Soon. Repent, or I will come soon. Soon in the Greek, is not just speaking of soon as in it's going to happen soon in the way we think. It, it means as well suddenly. Repent or I am going to come suddenly. In a moment. In a lightning strike. Suddenly. It was the case so many times in Scripture where God warned and warned and called men to repentance, and many years went by. But when God came in his judgment, it was sudden. Sudden. This is how it was for me when I was lost. Suddenly, I was lost. Seconds before, all seemed well. Fairly good kid in the eyes of the world, I think. Not in too much trouble. Certainly not the greatest of students, but got through it. I remember a couple of fights as a little kid, nothing serious. Kids getting into it every now and again. But sitting in that chapel that day when I was 11 years old, suddenly... I was lost. And it was sudden. Suddenly everything changed. Suddenly everything was different. God's work 
is sudden work. It's sudden in judgment. Proverbs 29 verse 1, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck, he who is often warned, we might say, yet ignores it, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Please hear this. This is the word of God talking to us and telling us who he is, who we are, and the reality that we live in. He who is often reproved, he who is corrected, who is chastised, and yet stiffens his neck and is stubborn, he will suddenly be broken beyond healing. That's a sudden work in Ecclesiastes 9.12. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. God's judgment isn't merely soon and it is soon by any definition of time next to eternity. Again, what is 80 years of waiting next to unending years of eternity? That 80 years, that 100 years is soon next to that kind of scale. But not only is it soon in that way, it is sudden. God's judgment has been in the past. It is today. And ultimately that day when Jesus comes again, it's going to be a sudden destruction. To all of those who ignored the warning of God in his word to repent and to believe and to follow. In judgment, God's work is sudden. And so too, in God's work of deliverance, it is also sudden. In Isaiah 29, verse 5, The multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff, and in an instant, suddenly, they will be this. We look out in the world today, do we not see a great many enemies to the cause of Christ? Do we not see great and powerful nations and people with the ability to cause unspeakable damage and destruction to our lives and to the lives of those around us and those that are facing destruction even today from war to war and from place to place. And we look around and we see those enemies and we see them as powerful and as able to cause all sorts of damage to us. And yet God says, one day your foreign foes, they're going to be like small dust. And the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And it's going to happen in an instant. And suddenly they will be like that. It will be poof. And they're gone. Sudden work. We, you and I, we are far too easily lulled to sleep by what some have called the normalcy bias. We wake up day after day after day one day seems to go into the next and they're much like the one that came before and because of that, that normalcy bias begins to slip in and we think, you know what? Tomorrow is going to be just like today because today was just like yesterday and yesterday was just like the day before it. But I'm here to tell you from experience that suddenly things can change. And God's judgment and God's deliverance is sudden. Because you think, and we are lulled to sleep, 
perhaps. But the idea that things will continue on as they have always come before, we face different challenges and struggles in that sense. We face victories and joys every day, from day to day, and yet we're loathed to sleep by the normalcy of it all. But one day, one day, suddenly, nothing will be normal again. Will all have changed? And the suddenness of God's work, by the way, is in His judgment, is one that ought to bring reverent fear to our hearts, to not delay if He is chastising us, if He is drawing us to Him. May we not delay, because suddenly we can be without healing, according to Scripture. But not only is that suddenness a challenge to those who need to come to God in repentance in the first place, the sudden work of God is often what catches His people and His own children by surprise. We feel a desire to serve God. I believe that's inward, inwardly wired in the child of God when He saves us. There's a desire to serve Him. The one who has freed us from the shackles of sin. The one who has delivered us from an eternal separation from Him and from life and from joy. We want to serve this one who paid our penalty on the cross that was due to us, but instead He took our place. We want to serve Him. We feel a desire to. And when He suddenly opens a door, we're too slow to walk through. Because His work is sudden. It's some Tuesday afternoon and God flies open a door that you were never expecting. The door opens and there it is. He says, go here. You just got up. It's just another Tuesday, isn't it? Just like last Tuesday, my schedule, my recurring meetings, they're the same every Tuesday. I, every My habits and my routine, which are, I think are good things in the life that we live, Yet we need to in, in, invest in them a knowledge that suddenly at any moment it can change. And God tells the church in Pergamum, when this happens, when my judgment comes, it's going to be sudden. I'm telling you now that I'm coming. And I'm not telling you when. Because I want you to love me enough to serve me. Because you know what we'd all do if we knew the time and the date in the future? We'd all wait until about five minutes before that date to do anything about it. And I'll tell you that by then, your heart would be so far gone, you probably couldn't do anything about it. The fact that God doesn't tell us when is a blessing, not a curse. But he does tell us this. It's sudden. My work is sudden, God says. It's sudden in deliverance. It's sudden in, in judgment. And it's sudden when I lead you to follow me. Do not let, we should, I, I, I want to say this, we must be careful to discern God's will in our lives. I am not here today to encourage some kind of maverick lifestyle and then blame God when things go wrong because it really wasn't Him leading in the first place. I'm not talking about that, but I am telling you this, do not let your spiritual investigation become paralysis by analysis because God's work is sudden. And when it's time, it's time. Don't spend your time analyzing the many what-ifs, but analyzing whether or not it is God indeed's voice that is directing you 
to this place and this this service to do, whether or not it's really him that's opening the door or not. When God convicts, it's sudden. When God saves, it's sudden. And when God leads, it's sudden. I was sitting in a church listening to Brother Jackie Brakebill preach a sermon on a Wednesday night at Calvary Missionary Baptist Church when I was 19 years old. And I was listening. I was enjoying being at church. I hadn't been at Calvary very long, but I was sitting, I was listening. And as he was preaching, the word preach just kept coming to my heart and to my mind. Preach, preach, preach. And it was sudden. Wasn't looking for it. Wasn't expecting it. Wasn't planning it. It was sudden work. So many times in my life, it's been the same way. God works suddenly. And there have been far too many times where that suddenness has caught me far too off guard and too unready. The Church of Pergamum was warned. This judgment that I tell you of, that I'm going to come and fight against them, I'm telling you, and it's going to be sudden. And we'll, we'll close. Our time is short. We do not want to miss the promise that was given to this church. Faithful in the face of persecution, but dabbling far too much and accommodating far too long with those who are who were living like the world and idol worship and impurity of lifestyle that was not acceptable to Christ. And he points it out to them and he says, So repent. Or I'm going to come suddenly. 17, verse 17, who has, he who has an ear, let him hear. If you're willing to listen, then listen. Because you see, there's not a whole lot that can be done for those unwilling to listen. Even when it's God's words. It is interesting to me that so much of the world today accuses the Christian of being narrow-minded and closed-minded when it is actually just the opposite. The world is unwilling to listen to God anymore. Our nation is unwilling to hear. And there's not a lot you can do for someone when they're not willing to listen. And so if we are willing to listen, if I am willing to listen, which is all I can do, I can't make anyone else willing. I have far, far too much work to do in my own heart and mind to, to ensure I'm ready to listen than to fix it in others. But if you're willing to listen today, if you're willing to listen to the Holy Spirit and He is speaking to you today, then I, I, then let, let Him hear. What have you heard? He says, if you're willing to listen to those uh, to, to listen to what the Spirit of the Church says, and He says to the one who conquers, the one who uh, adheres to this, the one who responds rightly to this, the one who does indeed repent, the one who responds suddenly when I move, suddenly, doesn't delay, but does so when I ask, to the one who conquers, this is the promise. I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. And a white stone with a new name written on the stone. So much you could get yourself lost in all of the speculation as to what this stone is. But for me, it's important to just keep it simple because that's as much as I can contain anyway. The hidden manna, he's going to sustain you. That's what the manna did in the Old Testament, isn't it? Sustain the children of Israel miraculously. 
God says, if you, if you will follow me, if you will, if you will fix the things that I have against you, you may be thinking, but if we, if we, you know, let's just think about it this way. Well, Lord, that's, that's going to be so many people and we're going to be devastated by their departure. The Lord says, look, I'm going to, I'm going to sustain you just like I've sustained my people ever and always. I'm going to give you hidden manna, and that manna is miraculous, and it sustains completely. They were not without any lack, or they were without no nutrient that their bodies needed. It sustained them in health, and and as they went through that judgment that he'd given them to travel through the desert because of their lack of belief, they sent the spies out, and go back and read all about it in Numbers. But he said, I, I gave them manna. He says, to those who will hear, I will sustain you, and I will sustain you miraculously. I will sustain you completely, and I'm going to sustain you by things that nobody else can even see. It's hidden. I'm going to give you a white stone, which I think is just simply a token of promise. White representative of purity, which is appropriate given the things that the Lord had against this church and the impurity that was going on there. I'm going to give you a token, a white stone that is going to go with you. And in some ways, I think this can be likened to the Word of God and His presence in our heart and the Spirit as you walk through this dark world where Satan's throne is. You're going to have a white stone in your hand. And as you look at that white stone, it's going to have a name that I gave you. That only we know. That only you know and I know. You know me and I know you. And though Satan dwells on his throne here, one day suddenly the Lord is going to come and judgment is going to be brought. What did he tell this church that was faithful and yet at risk? We serve the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, who has the truth, who speaks the truth and is the truth. He knows the darkness of the world that we live in and the reality that that dark world brings to our front door. He knows what those phones in our pockets can bring to our eyes and our mind and our hearts in a fraction of a second. He knows the influence that Satan, as he sits on his throne here, uh, wields in this world. He knows that. He also knows our faithfulness when we're called to it. And we demonstrate it, but he also knows and rebukes the worldliness when it is allowed in our own hearts and in that of the church. And he calls them to repentance. He warns them of the soon and sudden destruction that will come if left unheeded. And he promises to sustain all of those who take this warning and do repent. And do the works that repentance will bring. A, an honest desire to serve the Lord. Faithful, but at risk.